Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. The podcast returns to Georgia this week as I visit New Realm Brewing, where brewmaster Mitch Steele talks about brewing in the South, the allure of the West Coast IPA, and shares insights on his time at Stone and their recent acquisition. But first, All About Beer is back online and producing original content for beer enthusiasts and professionals. Visit allaboutbeer.com to see the latest. And if you want to support us in that endeavor, we've set up a Patreon for both readers and professional companies in the beer space. Check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to learn more. And we're able to bring you this show each week thanks to the companies that support independent journalism in the beer space. You can learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates by emailing sponsor at beeredge.com. Speaking of that, today's episode is sponsored by the Harpoon Brewery. Did you know that Harpoon IPA is New England's original IPA? Brewed in Boston and Vermont for decades by their employee owners. Hoppy, crisp, perfectly balanced. Harpoon IPA, New England's original IPA. Visit harpoonbrewery.com to learn more. I spent a few days in Georgia earlier this month, visiting breweries that had long been on my list, but current global events had kept me away. Chief among the breweries was New Realm. It's an impressive outfit that was founded by a trio of brewing professionals with long careers in beer. On the brewing side is Mitch Steele. He's one of those first name club brewers who has spent his tenure creating intriguing and classic recipes, pushing the boundaries of hops and working to bring forgotten or shadowed styles into the light. At New Realm, he's overseeing several breweries and a distillery, including the main location where we sat at the bar on a recent afternoon drinking lager and IPA. It's a wide ranging conversation that eventually turned to stone brewing, where Mitch spent a decade as the brewmaster. That brewery recently sold to Sapporo USA, a move that shocked and saddened a lot of beer fans. Although he's not there anymore and hasn't been for some time, Stone is part of his history, and Mitch shares some thoughts. Here's our conversation. So I'm going to admit something just as we get going with this, uh, mostly because um, I try to prep for these shows as best I can. But when there's a first name club brewer that shows up, I feel like my questions are just going to kind of go right out the window (laughs) because you know what you want to talk about. You know what's interesting to you these days. And I can be like, oh, what about hops? Or, you know, I can do any of that kind of thing. But you operate along with all of your other first namers because you've earned that over time. You operate on a different plane than most brewers and I think a lot of drinkers. So what is keeping you up at night? What is keeping you interested when you're on the brew house floor, when you're able to get to the brew house floor? So those are two very different questions. Okay. Well, um, we can start wherever you want. Let's start with what keeps me up at night yeah. then, uh, since you asked that first. Yeah. I, I think um, there's a lot of things. I mean, the the consolidation that's going on in the business is frightening but more frightening is the closures of so many really good breweries and and it seems like one or two come across my radar every single day it's yeah um you know and i know that's a regular cycle of a business like this where we've seen so much growth over the past few years that certain breweries are going to fall by the wayside but you know, in the wake of COVID and 
the economic stresses on the country right now, I, I'm nervous. I don't want to see really good brewers leave the industry. Um, and, and so that's, that's something that weighs heavily on me. Uh, I think the whole issue with supply chain and getting ingredients and everything that has impacted brewers' ability to get ingredients at a reasonable price and in a timely manner in the past two and a half years has been just really rough. And, you know, in all candor, I, I sit, I'm the chair of the Brewers Association Supply Chain Subcommittee, so I, I deal with this a lot. Uh, but certainly just on a personal level, um, you know, at New Realm, yeah, dealing with supply chain problems and getting cans and getting CO2 and paying to ship our beer to a different state and how much that costs now versus what it cost three years ago. It's the, rough. So the economics of beer have always been very fascinating to me because there are... There's really easy metrics that brewers can hit, or at least it's been explained to me. It's okay. Hops are going to cost this much. We know what our water bill is going to be. We know our electric bill. We know our malt bill. We know our employee costs. And then we have to hit targets selling over our bar top. We have to hit targets you know, selling out in, in, in retail. Right. When things jump up, I, just, I remember years ago somebody saying to me, uh, talking about like a, there, there was like a PBS special or something where they were like, there are uh, economists at Coca-Cola that will say if gas changes by four cents a gallon, there's emergency measures that go into it. It's, it was something along these lines. Interesting. But, but they yeah. had to track the price of gas because they were so dependent on shipping and in different parts of the country and around the world. And the price of gas could severely impact the bottom line of the, of the company. And that's a global brand. So when we're in an economy like we are right now, and all of a sudden everybody is saying, okay, everything is now just going to cost X times more than it did two months ago. Right. And you say, well, but why? And it's like, because it costs now 2X more than it used to. And there's no good answer, right. but that's just where it is. When you're a brewery of this size, where do you start have to, where are you making changes? Where are you adjusting yeah so obviously yeah. the easiest adjustment is to change your pricing which small breweries can't really do unless <laughs> sure. big breweries do because it. everybody else needs to fill up their tank to get here right and yeah um i think um you know what a lot of breweries have worked on and what we're working on right now is building efficiencies with our shipping lanes uh, so just not shipping willy-nilly, having a very strategic approach to shipping. Because we have four locations that we're shipping to and several distributors. And doing that right is important. You know, for, for something like CO2, uh, which has unexpectedly hit this huge shortage right now in the southeast and everybody's scrambling trying to deal with it. Wasn't that an early COVID thing as well? It was. You know, and, and it's interesting. I think one of the things that that I learned that I did not know prior to going into COVID in dealing with this is that the beverage CO2 industry is, is it's created by the ethanol industry and oil refineries and the side products huh. of both of those operations is 
CO2, which can then go to a processing plant and get cleaned up and, and converted into beverage grade CO2. Well, you know, when COVID hit and nobody was driving anymore, all these plants, the ethanol plants and the refineries were shutting down. Yeah. And, and that caused it. And now another prime source of CO2 is the fertilizer business and creating mm. nitrogen and it generate the process generates co2 which so i i mean all these things are so interrelated that it's it's been fascinating and distressing at the same time to learn about it yeah <laughs> so you know a lot of breweries are getting more efficient with their co2 there's co2 recovery systems in available for breweries that are a little bit well a lot cheaper than what they historically have been um, because, you know, uh, necessity drives it. So for here then, if you're not going to raise prices or you're going to do it modestly, are there other things that you need to be thinking about now? Are there, you know, beers that you would have liked to have made, but you look at the, the price of the ingredients and you're like, well, we're going to sit back for a little bit on that. Yeah, I, I would say it causes us to be a little bit more analytical with those kind of decisions. Um, it, it really hasn't impacted how we brew our beer, which is fortunate because I really don't want it to get to that point. Yeah. But, you know, hops hops are like the one ingredient that haven't gone up astronomically in the but past couple of years. we haven't had harvest this year. No. Yeah. No, we haven't. But, uh, you know, we're contracting for, for sure. this year's crop right now. And the, and the prices, you know, there's a little bit of a bump for inflation, but not whatever the inflation rate is right now. It was just kind of the standard bump that you see every year. Um, so we can use, but hops are one of the most expensive ingredients in beers like we make yeah. uh, for most of our beers. You know, yeast has gotten really expensive. Has and, it? Yeah. And I think you're the first person to tell me that. Oh, no. it's uh, And a lot of it has to do with shipping because it has to be shipped refrigerated if right. you're getting a liquid culture. And, yeah. Um, We've been using a lot more dry yeast than we ever have in the past, and, okay. the, and the quality has gone up tremendously, but it's also a lot cheaper to get it here and, and use than it is to get a liquid slurry for a 20-barrel pitchable or whatever the case is. Yeah. Do you, when you started doing the math on it and doing trial runs on dry versus liquid cultures coming in... Um, You've been doing this a long time. You know, do you yeah. notice a difference, or has it has it gotten to the point where the the strains that we use um, that we've been using dry yeast on uh, are really good? Okay. So we're using Calale yeast, and we're using the Vine Stefan thirty four seventy lager yeast in our beers, okay. in most of our beers, and the quality of those have been. Absolutely marvelous. I, I, you know, we have no qualms in using dry yeast for a 20 barrel batch here in Atlanta if we don't have pitchable yeast. Um, and then some of the other new strains that are coming out are only, you know, only available dry. And, yeah. you know, so you give those a shot. I mean, we've had problems with dry yeast before, but we've had problems with liquid yeast too. So I'm honestly, my, my hesitation on using dry yeast has been reduced dramatically over the past three years. But so much of that, or I wonder if so much of that is born from 
the era that you came up in craft beer, where there was a bent towards and, 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 and just sort of a need towards, okay, we're not going to do what everybody else does. And we need to make sure that we can show that these are the finest quality ingredients, you know, mm-hmm. I, all along. And I just had an article run in Wine Enthusiast where we were talking about adjuncts and we were talking about corn, rice, and beer. Uh, and back in the day when you were at Stone, there was that video that came out of, I'm a craft brewer. <laughs> yes, I and, just saw that. Yeah, that article, <laughs> yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and there was, you know, there's this whole part of like, I will never use corn. I will never use and yeah. I called Sean, uh, Sean O'Sullivan at 21st <laughs> Amendment, who was like one of these guys. And I was yeah. like, so how's El Sully doing for you these days? <laughs> right. And, and, he, and, and the quote that he gave me, which, which was just beautiful, it was like, we were so precious back then. <laughs> That's perfect. Do, that do, perfect. do you feel that way of like looking back now almost 20 years or, you know, 15 years of there's been a maturity because I don't think it's like bending to the will of larger beers. It's just technology and ingredients have sort of caught up a little bit. Maybe? Yeah, there's a there's certainly an element of that. Um, I think people's tastes have changed. Okay. Beer drinkers. So, yeah. I mean, you know, try to sell a West Coast IPA in Atlanta. You're going to struggle with it I, there are a couple that do reasonably well but it's a you know try to if you're trying to sell something that's got 70 IBUs here ah, it's going to be a tough sell uh, do you I think have that's one part on of it. here we do it's called Hoplandia okay yeah because you mean, should try it, it. I mean I, it's, I a, it's a wonderful because beer because if, if, if you're <clears throat> making one mm-hmm. I want to drink it yeah yeah but I I mean we've seen you know, and we talk a lot with our distributors and our partners and everybody, and we listen. And really, and, and the BA has been saying this for years that people are gravitating more towards lighter styles. Yeah. And um, you know, we're seeing that in what works for us and what what may be more of a tough sell. Is there? So, how do you square that as the brewer who? no styles better than most mm-hmm. and you want to put something that you are super passionate about in front of people like a west coast ipa and they say yeah it's too hoppy for me or yeah. you know this is too clear for me or this is this is too whatever for me um it, I, I don't know i mean you, you you hang up your jersey at the end of the day and you go home like any other player and it's yeah, you is, know, are there wins or there defeats? Like, what's the? Oh, sure. I'm using like yeah. a bad baseball analogy. No, I'm absolutely, trying to, yeah. absolutely. I mean, not everything is going to work, even though you may feel it's the best beer you've ever made. Yeah, um, and that's something I've dealt with my whole career. Even at Stone, there were beers that pilot beers that we did that I thought were great, and you know, our our VP of sales would say, "This is a great beer, but I can't sell it." And, you know, that's yeah, it's, but just go out and let people drink it. It's yeah. disheartening, you know, but I, I think the advantage that we have and that we had at Stone is that we've got this restaurant. Right. And and we've got 24 taps here. And what works in the restaurant doesn't necessarily work in distribution, but there's a home for some of those beers here in our restaurants, and and Hoplandia is a good example of that. That's I mean, the we, West Coast. Yeah. yeah, we do we do put that into dis- distribution, but it certainly gets a more favorable response here. How, um, how do you yeah. measure that? Is it just sales? 
for di- on the distribution side, it's sales okay. and reorders. Yeah, reorders are the big thing. Um, on in the restaurant, we look every week at what beers, uh, what the beer sales are by brand, and you know we take a lot of. Um, we do a lot of uh, analytical thinking about that. So it's you know it's like you know if we do a beer and it just isn't moving in the restaurants. We start questioning whether there's something wrong with the beer or whether it's just not a style that people are going to buy. Um, but, you know, that, it's, it's funny here. The, the question we get the most in all of our breweries and tap rooms is, what's your lightest beer? Interesting. And, yeah. Can I do a Hoplandia? Thanks. Uh, I'll do the same. Thank you. Um. You brought this up before, um, and I'm really curious. Uh, you, know, it, this, you said this may be the best beer I've ever made, blah, blah, blah. And you were yeah. using that as a hypothetical. Yeah. When you look back on your career, is there a beer that you feel is the best beer you've ever made? No. No. I mean, there are some that hold a, a very special place in my heart, I think, you know, but I don't think there's a single beer. For flavor reasons or for emotional reasons? Both. Okay. Both. I mean, so a good example is Sublimely Self-Righteous Ale from Stone. Okay. That was a beer that emotionally I had to, I had to really fight for. And, and from an emotional level, it really stuck with me because I went out on a limb. This was the first beer that I proposed to Greg and Steve. Oh. Did you mean the same thing that I was drinking or the same thing that you were drinking before? Uh, I was going to get one of those, but I'll get one of those later. It's all good. I, I, I've got blackberry smoke lager, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> but it's not a smoke. It's, it's named for the band. You know what? The band's fans do not, would not gravitate towards a smoked beer. Uh, they specifically said, please don't put smoke in it or, black, or blackberries. Did, did, you, <laughs> did you once tell me that Rauk beer is a style that you don't like or that you hadn't made or you wanted to make? I had this like vague Mitch Steele conversation in the back of my mind about you and Rauk beer where there's some sort of... Yeah, I I am not a huge fan of smoked beers, and I know that goes against what no, that's a, fine. That's a lot fine. of brewers. I you know it's it's one of those things where I enjoy tasting them, but I don't really like drinking them. Um, and I'm kind of that way with some of the some of the like the Flemish sours. Um, they're just too much for me, okay. you know, and and they don't agree with me physically. So, um, you know, a smoked beer that's you know our brewer Jeff down in Charleston just did a smoked Hellas. Okay. And he went very light on the smoke, so it's really balanced, and it's absolutely marvelous. Um, I think what I was probably talking about were the were the um, the beers from Bamberg that are yeah. that taste like smoked ham. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, that's just a bit much for me. Yeah, they're double dry hammed. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Um, so, all right. So, I interrupted you though. Uh, sub, uh, sublimely self-righteous. Yeah. So, so the idea of a black IPA was something that I thought about before. I right at the time I was joining Stone, and I pitched it to Steve Wagner. Steve Wagner. Yeah. Uh, as you know, hey, maybe we should do this for our 11th anniversary because I came on board right before we did the 10th anniversary beer, and Steve was like, "Yeah, I'm all for it." 
And we went into Greg's office, and Greg's like, oh, Greg Cook, it's yeah. been done. Greg Cook, yeah. And he was really dismissive of the whole idea. And I said, I know this could be a great stone beer. I just know it. And, and so I went back. I fought for it. And, and I'm not a guy. I'm a guy that tends to move on when somebody says no. I don't typically fight for things, but I believed in this one. And... I got them to okay us doing some pilot batches, and it took me a few tries. But when I, I got it, it was one of those, you know, I call them beer epiphany moments where you taste the finished beer for the first time in the lab, and you're like, holy shit, we got it. Sorry for the profanity. No, that's but, fine. That's, that's allowed on this show. Uh, yeah. But we nailed it, you know, and I, I remember just being so excited. I ran glasses up to Greg and Steve. And, and Greg tasted it, and he says, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> and, and that turned into one of the most innovative, best beers that we did during my time at Stone. I, I find that really fascinating because I've had the, the, the good privilege of knowing you for as long as I have and having your beers, and, it, and it's great to be in you know, your now, your, your new to me brewery. I know it's been around for five years, but, but having you know, been around the world with you and, 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 and had beers with you in various places, I find that, so, I find that story so weird that um, you could walk into an office and somebody would say no to you and, and, and that your original that your original thing might be to be like, oh, OK, and be deferential, but that you found the gumption to be like, no, this is going to be important to me. And I feel like that's important for a lot of young brewers to hear mm-hmm. of not being rude, but pushing back against your own convictions and your own thoughts against owners that are, again, Greg and Steve in the owners club, mm-hmm. you know, are first namers as well. Yeah. There, there, there's a really interesting, I, I, I don't quite know how to fully unpack this because I'm, I'm trying to reconcile this where, where they were telling you no. At some or Greg was telling you yeah. no. Um, I yeah. Where, where if there was a young brewer here or a brewer of any age here who felt strongly about something, you're a mentor in this industry. You're somebody who. I, I, when is the right time to push back? Because it's not all the time. It's not. I I think you have to be smart. You have to know who who the decision maker is you have to pick your battles i think the fact that i had steve in my court on this one helped tremendously okay. and and steve was always that way with me i mean he he vetoed a few ideas i had and he goes you know like I, I, we talked about doing a rye ipa for one of the anniversary beers and he goes you know i really don't like rye beers and i'm like okay i'll move on we'll do something else you know sure. but um when he but was greg was like i don't like it you're like Screw you, I'm going to make the best rye IPA you've ever had. So there was a situation where we... <laughs> I, I, I now see the pattern here. If Steve's on board, you're going to go forward. If Greg was on board, you're like, I'm going to prove you wrong, motherfucker. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, there was... I remember Greg really disliked classic styles, right? He just well, sure that was his shtick. that was his shtick. So I I remember suggesting we do a big Scotch ale at one time, and he's just he, he like pantomimed a yawn, you know, and just said, "No, nah, no, we don't want to do that." Well, 
Steve and I got with Jeff Bagby, who was at Pizza Port at the time, sure. and Chuck Silva, who was at Green Flash at the time, and we were going to do a collaboration. And when Stone did collaborations, we always let the other brewers really drive the beer. <laughs> and so, so you found the loophole. We're, we're sitting at Pizza Port drinking beer and eating pizza and talking about this. And, <laughs> and, and how about we don't do an IPA came up. Uh, and it wasn't me that said that. I think it was Jeff Bagby. <laughs> or maybe it was Chuck. Sure. And, and so we ended up evolving this discussion into a scotch ale. And we freaking brewed a great scotch ale. <laughs> And I remember telling Greg after the fact, I was like, yeah, we snuck that one by you, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, there are ways. And, and, and here in this brewery, you know, with our tap room, if I believe in something or I believe in a new ingredient or a new hop, I can, I can get it out there in front of people without having to go through our sales and marketing and ownership. Yeah. And be okay with it. You know, I have that freedom, which I'm lucky because not every brewer has that freedom. And there are some brewers out there that have 100% freedom to do whatever they're passionate about. Sure. Which is, I, I envy that to some extent because I've never really had that. But I get a lot of creative freedom here just because of the way we've, we're organized as a business. And, and so I get to, you know, satisfy that part of my brewing wishes pretty frequently. You've, uh, we've talked about Stone a little bit, um, and it's come up, and I don't want to belabor this too much, but you also talked about consolidation at the very top of this yeah. show. Um, Stone selling to Sapporo was a decision that I think shocked a lot of people. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of M&A and the uh, mergers and acquisitions in the last couple of years. Um, the fact that... Greg especially was as vocal for a very long time as he was. I think hit people in a different way when Sapporo came in with an offer and they, they, they had agreed to it. And it's five years here at New Realm. I don't want to diminish any of that. But when people look back and they say, you know, Mitch Steele, your, your name is still synonymous with Stone and the, and, and the growth and everything else mm -hmm. like that. You posted that morning that that was shocking news when, yeah. when that came out. And that, and that sort of hurt. Um, does that change the brewery in your mind at all? Um, you know, that's a difficult question. I, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't change the people that are working there. Mm -hmm. And and that's really, you know, my post was all about them. Of course. You know, and... And, and, and that, you, you showed the human element to it. Yeah. Which I really liked as opposed to just like the transactional. Because everybody's um, like, what'd they get for it? You know, what's this yeah. going to mean? And, every, and, and there were people who woke up who got called into a Zoom at 11 o'clock that night yeah. of like, hey, this is going to happen. I was woken up at 2 o'clock on the East Coast with like text messages being like did you see this yeah um, I, yeah. yeah and and you know I talked to a couple of I still have a lot of very close friends at Stone and I talked to them that weekend and and you know they're they're optimistic cautiously optimistic you know yeah. uh, but um, you know you never know what's going to happen with those kind of things and that's what makes it so scary but you know I, I I look at that as very symptomatic of how this business is changing and and this business has always gone through a lot of serious changes right, right. and this is just another one uh, I think Greg and Steve and and this is just me conjecture 
um, probably might have agreed to do this because it was going to save the company and save the jobs of everybody that's working there. Right. You know, versus just going going under. Right. Um, I don't know if that was where they were at, but certainly it's you know it's the option that's going to save these people's jobs you know the jobs of everybody at team stone is is you know if sapporo does what they say they're going to do and really expand the production that means yeah you know they're they're going to have a solid crew and they can do what they they need to do with that team i don't know it's 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 really tough and and i will tell you it hit me hard it hit me really hard because I, you know, I invested so much of my life and my energy into Stone the years I was there. And, you know, after that came out, I texted Steve and Greg because I still stay in touch with them infrequently, but sure, I stay in touch. Yeah. And, and I just thanked them, you know, for giving me the opportunity they gave me because it was, it was the most amazing 10 years of my career. Yeah. Uh, being part of what Stone was all about. And, you know, and I, I just wish them luck, you know, because, hey, you know, shit happens. You can't control it all the time. And sometimes you have to make decisions that you don't want to make. Do, do, do you find that there is, I know you make the beer that people want to drink, but brands and beers become personal for the drinkers. And you must see that here now that you're, you know, working in this tap room and you, you can come out and you can see the people who care about what they're drinking and, and, and what's in front of them as well. And when one of these sales happens, I, I, I'm wondering, there's always a lot of big online talk. <laughs> yes. But the actual reality of it, and you've seen your friends go through this, you've seen other people go through this. Yeah. If the beer doesn't, quote unquote, change, if somebody still walks into a place and it's, you know, nine times out of ten, a lot of people who walk into brewers don't know who the owners are or don't know. Who Absolutely yeah. true. You know, yeah. like, you know, um, these things like what should the drinker be thinking about, if anything at all? Is it still just, hey, I like the people who are serving me the, the beer and I like the beer that I'm drinking right now and... I certainly that's think enough for me. Yeah, I certainly think that's an important element of it. You know, if you if you are personally attached to the people that work in the brewery and the beers that they make and the beers don't get changed and they don't get dumbed down or whatever, you know, I I have no problem with continuing to support the brewery. Um, I know, you know, there are people that take political stances. Um, I certainly have. A, a yeah. few times over the years just because of who did the purchasing. But on the other hand, you know, I may not buy their beers frequently, but it doesn't mean that if I'm handed one, I'm not going to drink it. I'm sure. never going to get to that point. Um, and, it, you know, it's a tough thing. And, and you know, you, I think it's evident of how everything is changing so fast is you can take this stance that was 100% valid and wonderful 10 years ago. Sure. And it doesn't work today, right? And it's like, I, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tough thing. I mean, I, mean, I know there's a local, local pub here who I love. Uh, they're, they're great people. They run one of the best beer bars in the country. And 
I it's, hope I know who you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, and as yeah. soon as as soon as a company's bought out, they stop serving their beer. Right. You know, if they're owned by a big if they're not an independent craft brewer, they don't serve their beer. And I get it, you know. Um and I totally understand their their logic there. Um I just you know, at some point <laughs> I think the way the industry's going, people are going to be painted into a corner with some of this stuff, you know, and, uh, but that goes back to the corn and rice thing. And that goes back yeah, to the, it you does. know, I, I feel like brewers should be able to paint on the canvas that they want to, and we can gravitate towards your art in the way that we want to, you know, like there, there's people who, you know, I, I, I get emails all the time. It's like, you should go try so-and-so. And it's like, well, I've been there. And I've had their beers, yeah. and it doesn't speak to me as as a drinker. You know, as a journalist, I'll show up and do my job, and I'll write about the ingredients, and I'll write about the process and everything. But do I want to then sit at the bar and have two or three pints afterwards? Maybe mm-hmm. not, because it doesn't necessarily speak to me that way. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation beyond ownership, beyond ingredients, beyond something of it's just... I, I feel like we're all in this bubble... Yeah, when we when we're behind these microphones, and it's you know, and even if the mics weren't here, you and I would probably still be talking about this shit. Yeah, and are we solving the world's problems? Are we doing? I I I, I don't know. I yeah, it's it's a very interesting dynamic because craft beer for so long has been all about the passion of the brewer, and you know it's it's like winemaking and, the, and you know, the, the real high-end wines, the winemakers are somewhat celebrities and things like that. It's You want to hear a funny story? Yeah, I, of course I do. I, <laughs> this show is all about levity now that we've so, been talking about, you know, just the grim realities of economics. So yeah. back when I was doing new products at Anheuser-Busch and I was in St. Louis and I was in corporate brewing and I was part of this marketing brewing slash brewing group that was doing specialty beers we didn't call them craft beers because they weren't craft and everybody knew that we tried to be authentic with it but we were doing these specialty beers and anheuser-busch was probably the epitome of a very marketing marketing driven brewing decision making team yeah so they they would tell the brewing team what to brew and then the brewing team would brew it um so not a lot of beer to guards no and I, i remember um you know, I got into it with them on something stupid. I don't know what it was, you know. And, and I, the VP of Brewing, Gerhard Kramer, sat me down and talked to me. And he goes, you know, I've learned something over the years. He said, when marketing asks you to do something, just smile and say, okay. And then you do what's right for the beer. And I thought that was very, I, I thought that was amazing that he, coming from where he was coming from, was able to tell me that. And then... Gosh, a little while later, the beer writer, Michael Jackson, came into Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. And, you know, he's that obviously was a big deal, but nobody in Anheuser-Busch knew who he was, except for the people like me who, right. who were doing these beers. And he told Gerhard Kramer, he said, the, the brewers should be driving what beers you sell, not the marketing team. And it was profound. <laughs> and, and the reverberations went through the whole company. Jackson had that power. Yeah. And it was amazing. And, and I remember we were all excited, right? Because we had all these wonderful beers that, that, you know, our marketing team didn't want anything to do with. 
Um, and, you know, we didn't know if this was going to signal a, a change in philosophy or not. And it turns out it didn't. It lasted for about two weeks. Um, but, you know, it was amazing that he went in there and, and, and told Gerhard Kramer that. More in just a moment, but first, thanks to the companies that help keep us on the air. If you'd like to help out the show as well, you can reach out to sponsor at BeerEdge.com. And today's episode is sponsored by Harpoon Brewery. Did you know that Harpoon IPA is New England's original IPA? Brewed in Boston and Vermont for decades by their employee owners. Hoppy, crisp, and perfectly balanced. Harpoon IPA, New England's original IPA. Visit HarpoonBrewery.com to learn more. And now... Back to the conversation. You've told a couple of different stories now that sort of hinge upon two sides within the same company of what the brewer wants, what the owner wants, like that kind of thing. Is there a neutral zone, a DMZ, where marketing ownership, brewing staff can actually get together should there be like do, do you need the yin and yang do you need the, the 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 push and pull or can there actually just be a hey this is our mission we're going to go from there because i'm going to guess it comes down to the economics at the end economics versus passion cold hard facts versus what people want to do yeah i think it's important to strike a healthy balance and i think i think the yin and yang is important i think it's good to have opposing ideas and and talk about them if somebody from marketing or sales doesn't believe in a beer i'm pitching i'll brew a, a five barrel batch and serve it in the restaurant and say see i told you yeah this, but, but, but where does marketing get off telling you it's American business, you know. Okay. I mean, that's that's just the way businesses are run, right? I, I mean, mean, that's just my journalism heckles. Getting yeah, up, where I mean, like, I don't need a PR person to tell me what I should be drinking. Well, I, I don't. Mitch, I don't either. I want, Mitch Steele, <laughs> I want Mitch Steele to put a beer down in front of me and be like, "Drink this," and I'll be like, "God damn, Mitch Steele, nice beer." Believe me, if 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 that was the reality <laughs> of the situation, why, I'd be it, very very it's, excited. That's why I don't own a brewery. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's. I mean, there are breweries that can do that. Um, um, you know, with a brewery, it depends on how what your sales operation looks like. If you're selling to distributors and, you know, you've got to count on them to push beers that they may not want to push. And that's where this dynamic of, of trying to strike a balance between brewing what they're asking for versus what we really want to brew and, and, and be really authentic Um you know, you got to find a place in the middle. Um, otherwise, you're going to go crazy, uh, you know. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that here. You know, Stone was an anomaly, in my opinion, because I, I remember having a conversation with Arlen Arnston, who was the VP of sales for Stone for a long time, and I loved him to death. But he said, you know, we'd have these planning meetings, and he, he would say, look, if you guys come up with a beer that is absolutely fantastic, I will climb the highest rooftops and shout it out to everybody who will listen, and we will sell this freaking beer. And at some point, that changed, <laughs> you know? And, and um, you know, it's, it's not a situation where you can tell everybody you're selling your beer to that they should like this beer and, and explain why it's a, such a special beer. 
But you still get to do that to some extent. And that's what keeps me going is that, you know, I can brew an Italian Pilsner here and people get all excited about it. And I'm sure. like, yeah, it's just freaking wonderful. But are they getting excited because it's an Italian Pils or just because it's 90 degrees with humidity to match? And well, I'm hoping damn, it's both. That's just <laughs> I'm hoping it's both. No, I know. Honestly. But like, you, know? you also have to brew for where you are, which sort of yeah. brings me into you guys have four locations now. And there are where people live can kind of dictate what they drink. And yes. you're no stranger to this because at Stone, when you were there, you were flying to Germany, you were flying to Virginia, you were you know, multiple locations yep. in California. And every place was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That's got to be exhausting because there's one there's no one size fits all. But yes. it's also got to be a fun challenge of trying to unlock when people are sitting here at your granite top bar. What are they going to care about versus when they're in Virginia Beach, when they're in Savannah, when they're in it's Charleston is the third Charleston. Yeah. Fourth, yeah. Yeah. So there's it's it's been fun honestly i mean we've had four brewery tap rooms in the southeast and every one of them has different things that move right and it i remember we did um, uh tyler this was tyler's beer tyler downey who was our first head brewer here in yeah. atlanta he did a munich dunkel and he wanted to brew it and i was all for it and you know, he showed me the grain bill, and I said, wow, that's a very interesting grain bill. I wouldn't have approached this beer that way, but let's do it. And he brewed it on the pilot system. We sold out of a five-barrel batch in three days over a weekend. Jesus. And that beer has been something we have made ever since. And it's usually in the top five, if not the top, you know, uh, top five of the beers that we sell. Especially up in Virginia Beach, where you have so many people that are, that are in the military up there who have served in Germany and sure. got used to drinking Dunkels and Hellas's and things like that. So every location's different. Atlanta's hot. You know, um, they like, you know, they, uh, not to generalize, right. but there's a, there's a strong attack attraction to beers with fruit in them here and not bitter beers. Now, Virginia is a little bit more traditional, I would say. So the traditional styles tend to do better in Virginia. Um, Jeff was telling me the other day in Charleston, they like sours, you know? They really want sours there. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. Yeah. That gives us some flexibility and some opportunities to, to do some really different things. When you're thinking about your head brewers in your four locations, do you want them to be siloed do you want them to work in conjunction with each other for the benefit of the mothership like how do you how do you think about the brewers that are running the places uh, running the four locations mm -hmm. you know because i'm not diminishing you here but like you get to sit out here and have some beers with me right now and i'm watching guys through this window who are yeah. actually like brewing and working hard right now yeah yeah um, our head brewers you don't get to the first name off. club by you know yeah. still scrubbing out at yeah yeah i mean i'm happy to grab a mop when i need well, to sure. you know yeah. but um but uh, are you looking for certain traits yes so i i am one of those people that likes everybody to feel like they can contribute 
whether it's ideas about beers, whether it's uh, ideas about how we run our breweries, how we manage things. And, and so I tend to hire people that are self-starters and are creative. And, you know, I, it, it, I always say anybody on our brewing team can submit a recipe to brew on one of our pilot systems, whether it's the seven-barrel system in Charleston or the five-barrel system here in Atlanta. All I ask is that they run the recipe by me. Right. And, and I have veto power if I need yeah. to, you know. And, but so many great beers have come from the brewing teams that I've worked with over the years. I've never... I, so to answer your question, yeah. I like it when everybody is a group and, and we can bounce ideas off each other. And we have several meetings um, scheduled where all the head brewers are on the call. And, and it's like, look, guys, I want your opinion, you know. I, I, I want you to tell me what you think. I value that, and and I like to hire head brewers that can contribute in that way. Does that build an overall community spread out over four places? I hope it does. Yeah. I mean, we've worked really hard at that, and and the fact that we're all getting on a Microsoft Teams call sure. uh, every afternoon okay. <laughs> is, you know, for just a 15-minute update, it, it builds the team. And we're trying to do, you know, once we get past the summer where everything is so crazy... We're trying to do some real team building events and maybe bring everybody up to Virginia Beach or bring everybody to Atlanta, do a beer together, go out and visit some really great breweries and pubs. And, you know, I've just got to find the wherewithal to get that done. But that's certainly on our list for this year of things we want to do. At Stone, I used to do a brewing school yeah. every quarter. Yeah. You know, it was an internal brewing school. Everybody... There were no presentations from anybody from outside Stone. So people that wanted to present on something had to do their own research, create the presentation. Everybody came in for it. We spent the whole day together, and then we had a, a blast in the evening. And, it, you know, that kind of thing is, you know, I, I struggle to get that kind of stuff done, but I think it's really important. I've been asking folks on the show... Uh, You've been on before, but I think it was mm -hmm. before I started asking people this question. Uh, so there's a sitcom uh, called The Good Place. I, I haven't seen it. With. No. Right. So there's a concept on the show where you can walk through a green door and be any place at any time with anybody that you want to be. So if such a door was on our plane of existence and this conversation was ending... And you could walk through a green door after we're done and be at any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world at any point in time. Where would you go? Who would you want to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. By the what, way, a cool, what a question. By the way, thanks for listening <laughs> to the show, Mitch. That's cool. Cause, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Um, <clears throat> So, my first thought was I would open the door and be in a Fuller's pub in London, drinking a Fuller's London Porter. Like with John Keeling? Or yes, like with, with John and Derek sure. yeah. and, and some of the London beer people, you know, like Melissa Cole and some sure. of these other folks. That, to me, would be a magical moment. Um, and then, as I started thinking about this a little bit more, if I could go back in time and sure. go to the old Lions Brewery Depot in the Bay Area of California that was run by Judy Ashworth and sit in that 
oh, bar. Fun. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And it was so groundbreaking at the time. She was like the only one doing what she was doing yeah. with so many taps and it was all craft and and she had separate rooms for ales versus lagers you know different temperatures and my god what she was doing was extremely innovative and different yeah. and special and 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 she was the first one to put one of my beers on tap really yeah outside of the brewery i was sure. working at yeah. so you know it, it, it's a very special memory for me and there's part of me that would love to go back and have another day there you know because uh, it's no longer in existence um i don't know that's that's uh, that's a really cool question and there's so many different ways I could answer that. I mean, you know, <laughs> being at Orval. And, you well, know, sure. <laughs> you right. know? At the inception. Yeah. Or, yeah. Right. or just right now. Yeah, yeah. just even now. Yeah. yeah. I, but I, I, I will say that I do love English pubs. Yeah. Uh, there's something about them that just really works for me. And I, I love sitting in an English pub and having a pint of real ale and just conversing, you know, having conversations with people I don't know because they're so friendly most of the time. I, I, I love feel it. Like, I feel like you guys have created that here, though. Like it, this feels like a very modern U.S. brewery space. You have your Edison bulbs. You have your poured granite top. Yeah. But, but we're here in the middle of the afternoon on a... I guess this is Monday. It's I, Monday, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea where I am or what I'm doing these days. Um, but people are just sitting around and they're having a good time. And they're yeah. just... I imagine that an hour from now it's going to feel different. But for I'm right sure. now, at least, like you've created, you know... And they're all drinking your beers and the beers that like your team has created. That's a, that's a special thing. You know, it really is. It's the best thing in the world. That's why we're all in this business. You know, to be sitting here and seeing all these people at the bar drinking our beers, beers that we put our heart and soul into, it's, it's magic. It's what fuels all of us that work on the brewing side. It's, it's great. It's the best thing in the world. We're going to be hanging out for a little bit longer, but thanks yeah. for being on the show this You're week. You're welcome. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. this is, it's always, always fun to, to talk to you. No, man. you too, my friend. <laughs> thanks, pal. All right. I can't recommend visiting New Realm enough. From the beers to the kitchen to the overall vibe, it's clear that a lot of time, talent, and attention went into the creation and maintenance of this brewery. They're even featured in the Craft Brewery Cookbook, and that's on sale where books are sold. So go get a copy today. I'm also going to remind you that All About Beer is back online. Go to allaboutbeer.com to catch up with great content. If you want to keep in touch with me, you have questions, comments, guest suggestions, you can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com or get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Go check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and dwindling Defend Pilsner merch. And you can follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search. And on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you the show each week thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. Speaking of that, today's episode is sponsored by Harpoon Brewery. Did you know that Harpoon IPA is New England's original IPA? Brewed in Boston and Vermont for decades by their employee owners, it's hoppy, crisp, and perfectly balanced. Harpoon IPA, New England's original IPA. Visit harpoonbrewery.com 
to learn more. All About Beer has a podcast channel now. You can search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Still, This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And don't forget to go visit allaboutbeer.com. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. And my name is John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>